Many of you are aware that a little over three weeks ago I had a bicycling accident and uh, it resulted in a broken hip. And I am grateful to even be able to stand here in front of you, but I do have a stool behind me just in case I need to sit. And I feel in good company in case I do, because you may remember from Luke chapter 4, where Jesus was invited to read the scripture in the synagogue, and he stood up to read, and then he sat down to make comments on the scripture. And his comment was that this, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, I'm not going to say that because that would be blasphemy to make a statement like that. But the tradition of standing to read scripture and sitting to preach is actually a biblical one. I invite you to take a Bible and turn to Colossians chapter 1 where we'll be reading verses 21 through 23. Before we read that, you may know that uh, today is the running of the Columbus Marathon, and a number of people in our congregation are participating in that. And as you think about a marathon, it is called a marathon for a reason. It is not a sprint. It's not won by the person who's first out of the blocks or first down the the first section of road, but it's the one who finishes and finishes well, and that's what our text is about today from Colossians 1, 21 through 23. There is this vital concern that we all must share about continuing in the faith. Jesus said it in Matthew 10, 22. He talked about persecution that would come, and he said that the one who endures to the end will be saved. He echoed that again in Matthew 24, 13. And so Jesus emphasized that it is only those who endure to the end who will be saved. Now, saving faith is faith that perseveres. We know about Peter. We know that Peter denied the Lord three times, and yet Jesus spoke to Peter, and he said, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers." What an encouraging word for Simon Peter to hear in light of his three denials of Jesus, that Jesus himself was praying for him that his faith would not fail. In talking with people who were recognizing the closeness and nearness of their own death, sometimes I'll ask them, what would you like me to pray for you about? And some of the answers... One of the common answers is this, that I wouldn't lose my faith, that whatever I go through at the end of my life, that it wouldn't cause me to cash in my faith, to give up on Jesus, that I would remain trusting in him to the end, that I would glorify him in death as well as in life. Now, in the larger evangelical world for a number of decades, there has been an emphasis on the gospel, the message of the gospel as the gateway. You've heard Lee talk about this in recent weeks, about the gospel is more than simply gateway. It is that. The message of the good news of Jesus Christ is that we can be rescued and reconciled to God through Jesus Christ by faith alone, in his grace alone. But the gospel is more than just a gateway to get us in as though 
once we're in, we ignore Jesus for the rest of our lives. You perhaps have had conversations with people, as I have, parents often who will tell me about their children, they're often their grown children, adult children, and they say that, you know, there's just no indication that they're trusting Jesus right now, they're making foolish decisions, they're lost in many ways, they're bound up, they're addicted in different ways, but I know that they're saved because they prayed a prayer one time. And it causes me to think, if there is no indication, present indication of, or evidence of trust in Christ, were they really converted? Did they ever really have faith? Or were they simply mouthing words in a prayer that said, yes, I believe that heaven is preferable to hell? Because for some people, I think that's all it is. You ask them to pray to receive Christ, and they say, okay, I, yeah, I guess heaven's better than hell, the way you describe it. I, I think that's a better destination. So, yeah, I'll, I'll pray that prayer. And Are we done with it then? Or the, the person who has a, a would-be evangelist come to their door, and they say, are you saved? And the guy calls out to his wife in the other room and says, mother? Didn't we do that back in whatever year it was, 20, 30 years ago? Didn't we do that one time? The gospel is more than gateway. It starts there. It must be that. That's the entrance to life in Christ when we place initial faith in Christ. But it is more than an initiation rite. It is a continuation route that calls us to persevere, to continue in the faith. We've talked before about the one-and-done mentality, and in athletics, particularly in college athletics, you've got some incredibly gifted athletes who come out of high school, and they're immediately superstars, and they want to play one year of college and then jump to the pro ranks, and some sports allow that, some sports don't. But some people treat the gospel that way, as one and done. You pray a prayer, and you ignore Jesus for the rest of your life, and you're set for eternity. But the gospel is more than gateway. It is a pathway on which we are to continue in faith. And so persevering faith is the evidence of saving faith. So with that in mind, I invite you to follow along with me as we read from Colossians 1, 23, uh, 21 through 23. Hear now God's word. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister." So the first words of this passage indicate a pivot. In the previous verses, in 15 through 20, he was focused on the supremacy of Jesus Christ. We saw, even going back to verse 13, that Jesus has delivered us. 
in verse 15 that he is the image of the invisible God. In verse 17, he is before all things. In verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. So in the previous verses, he has been showing us the sufficiency and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And now when we get to verse 21, he pivots to the believers in Colossae and says, and you. And so he's going to talk about who believers in Jesus, these believers in Colossae, and by extrapolation, we ourselves, who we were apart from Christ, who we now are in Christ, and who we one day will be in him. So previously, he was focused on who Jesus is and what he has done. And now in verses 21 through 23, he pivots to who we were, who we are now in Christ, and who we one day will be. So in these verses, the focus shifts from who Christ is to who Christians were apart from Christ, and then to who Christians, what Christians are becoming and what they will one day be by the grace of God. Now we see that God has taken the initiative in saving us. Not only has God taken the initiative, but God has done everything necessary to reconcile us to himself through the death of his son. Moreover, it's the spirit of God who sustains us and the grace of God that enables us to endure. So we are called to persevere, but it is God who perseveres with us to the end. So salvation is the work of God from beginning to end. We merely cooperate with this work of God by the power of the Holy Spirit and by his spirit who has been given to us to live within us. Now that doesn't mean just because God has, is initiating and doing the work from beginning to end, that doesn't mean that we are inactive or passive. We are commanded, we're called to continue in the faith. And in other words, we're to remember to remain in reliance upon God and to abide in absolute dependence upon him. So what does that look like to continue in the faith, to not shift from the hope of the gospel? Well, it's more than intellectual agreement with a doctrine, doctrinal definition. It's more than affirming the articles of the Apostles' Creed. The Bible says that without faith, works is dead or without works faith is dead excuse me and so obedience is faith expressed and the way to know if you're continuing in the faith is to examine your life and see if there's present reliance upon Christ and a daily dependence upon the grace of God has the gospel of Jesus made a difference in your life In this passage, Paul exhorts <clears throat> these believers not to shift from the hope of the gospel. The word shift is a word that speaks about foundations. And so he's telling them not to be moved off of the foundation of Jesus Christ because there is only one foundation which can be laid and that is Jesus Christ. He's saying to continue to bank your hope on Jesus Christ through the message of the gospel. And we saw in the first verses of Colossians that hope is closely related to faith. Hope is in fact future-oriented faith. So when we talk about faith, we're trusting in God for the present moment. When we talk about hope, we are trusting in God for the future and every future moment. 
It's confidence that God will keep every one of his promises. It's confidence concerning the future that God will do what is for our good and for his glory. And there are two aspects to our hope. One of those aspects is that one day we will be made like Christ, that we will be conformed to him. And so as we have been justified, as we've been declared not guilty of sin through faith in Jesus Christ, one day we will in fact be made what we have already been declared to be. That's our hope. That we're not who we were, we're not yet who we will be, and that God will finish the work that he has begun in us. So that's one aspect of our hope, is to be made like Christ. Another aspect of this hope is to behold Christ face to face. 1 John 3 says, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So this hope that we will one day be made like Christ and see Christ face to face, that keeps us going. We don't want to let go of that hope. We want to continue to cling to it. When we think about salvation and even the structure of this text, we see a past, a present, and a future. In verse 21, we see the past, our past situation. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. That was our situation apart from Christ. You and I and everyone who's ever lived were alienated from God. Every believer was at one time separated from God by sin. That separation was such that we could not get back to God on our own. We could not take a single step towards God and we could not span the chasm that separated us from God. In Ephesians 4, 17 and 18, the Apostle Paul wrote these words, Now I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds, They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. So all of us, prior to coming to faith in Christ, were ignorant. We didn't know, we were were not knowing God in a saving way due to the hardness of our hearts. Our hearts were as hard as rock. They were as cold as unfeeling and and as unfeeling as stone towards God. That's what the Bible means when it says we were alienated from God. And not only were we alienated, the Bible says that we were hostile in mind. We were at enmity with God. Now you may not think of yourself as having been hostile towards God. Perhaps you weren't going about cursing God and persecuting Christians. Maybe you weren't even indulging in the sins of the flesh. But if your life was not centered on Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, and if you were not treasuring him supremely, for whom and by whom and through whom are all things, then you were in effect raising your fist at heaven and saying to God, I will live my life the way I want I'm the master of my own fate, the captain of my own ship, and no one will tell me any differently. That's what it means to be hostile in mind towards God. All of us were that way, whether we recognize it or not. We were 
prior to faith in Christ, living our own life our own way. And that is mutiny. It's, traitor. it's a being a traitor. But the cross of Christ has bridged that great divide that separated us from a holy God. It doesn't matter how you say it. There's a bridge to cross the great divide or there's a cross to bridge the great divide. There's a way to reach the other side. That way is the cross of Christ. Jesus Christ took the punishment for the sin that separated us from a holy and eternal God. He became sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So we were alienated, we were hostile in mind, and then the Bible goes on to say that we were doing evil deeds. Now you may look back at your life before you began to follow a Christ, and you may say, well, I didn't get drunk or do drugs or rob banks or burglarize homes. I didn't kidnap or kill in cold blood. How can it be true that I was doing evil deeds? It's true because each of us and all of us chose to go our own way instead of God's way. We all, like sheep, had gone astray, and the Lord laid on Christ the iniquity of us all. Now, your life may not have looked like the most disgusting sinner that you can think of. You may be able to think of people who were doing much more evil than you. But think about this for a moment. What is the worst sin that we can commit? The worst sin that we can commit is scorning the supremacy of the Son of God and seeking satisfaction in something or someone less. So if that was ever true of you, and the Bible says it was true of all of us, then you and I were doing evil deeds, the worst evil imaginable. Now this has not been good news. But there is good news. That's what the gospel is. The message of Jesus Christ is good news. But until we hear and recognize and believe the bad news, we won't appreciate or welcome the good news. Milton Vincent, in his book, A Gospel Primer for Christians, says, The deeper I go into the gospel, the more I comprehend and confess aloud the depth of my sinfulness. A gruesome death like the one that Christ endured for me would only be required for one who is exceedingly sinful and unable to appease a holy God. Consequently, whenever I consider the necessity and manner of his death, along with the love and selflessness behind it, I am laid bare and utterly exposed for the sinner I am. Such an awareness of my sinfulness does not drag me down, but actually serves to lift me up by magnifying my appreciation of God's forgiving grace in my life. When we are aware of the suffering that Jesus endured for us, it doesn't drag us down, it lifts us up by giving us a greater appreciation of his grace towards us. When I fell and broke my hip a few weeks ago, it was soon after that that I saw on my phone that I'd received an email. It was from Lance Howersberger. And Lance didn't tell me at the time, but I sensed this might be the case, that he had undergone hip replacement surgery. He had had a deteriorating hip, and a couple of years ago he had that replaced, and he was telling me that 
in that time, the Lord allowed him to reflect on what God was doing in this season of life. And he was encouraging me to, to seek all that the Lord would have for me as I was there. And so I took my phone, the only electronic device I had with me, and I went to my memo pad and I began to record reflections on a broken hip. And the first thing that I wrote was this. Jesus voluntarily suffered on the cross with every breath causing excruciating pain. After I broke my hip, I didn't immediately feel pain. I couldn't put any weight on my right leg. That was strange, but I didn't feel pain so much. Got put on a squad, taken to the hospital, was lying on my back. I was relatively comfortable, didn't feel any pain. But when they said, we're gonna take you to this other room and we're gonna shift you to another bed and you're gonna, we're gonna take some x-rays, I felt pain. Pain like I'd never felt in my life before and it just took my breath away. I was like, <gasps> and I had to take a breath and just wait for a couple of seconds to just get myself calmed down again. And I began to think, that pain is nowhere near what Jesus endured. And I didn't choose it willingly. He voluntarily took that pain and endured it on the cross. And the pain that I was feeling was nowhere near what my sin deserved. Jesus bore our pain and our suffering. So we see from verse 21 that we were alienated, that we were hostile in mind, that we were doing evil deeds. As Ephesians chapter 2 says, we were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Our situation was desperate. And since breaking my hip, I've had a few moments of desperation. A couple of weeks ago on a Saturday night, I said to my wife before bed, because every step was hurting and I couldn't get comfortable, I said, just shoot me now and get me out of my misery. <laughs> Our situation was desperate apart from Christ. We were alienated due to ignorance, not treasuring Jesus supremely is an act of mutiny against God. But then we are offered this good news. That was our past situation. There's a present condition in verse 22a. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. So we who were once alienated have now been reconciled. It's already accomplished. And look carefully at how it was accomplished. The means by which this reconciliation was accomplished was in his body of flesh by his death. Not simply by his body. It's amazing enough that the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, took on human flesh. He humbled himself to the point of becoming like us, taking on the limitations of human flesh. That is amazing enough. But that was not enough for our salvation. He not only had to become flesh, he had to die the death that we deserved. So this reconciliation took place 
in his body of flesh by his death. And so now we are reconciled in Christ. And then we look ahead to the future presentation that the purpose in verse 22b was in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. The intention of God was to one day present us to himself holy and blameless and above reproach. That may remind you of the language of Ephesians 5 where it's talking about husbands and wives and it talks about Jesus as the great bridegroom of his church, the bride. And it says that he will present to himself his bride in splendor, without spot or blemish or any such thing. Jesus intends to one day present us to himself, holy and blameless and above reproach. The phrase above reproach is an interesting one. It has a legal connotation that there is no legal accusation that can be made against us. Satan will try to accuse us. He is the accuser of the brothers. And he makes accusations. But because of Jesus Christ, if we're united to him in faith, those accusations fall harmless to the ground. There is no legal accusation that can be made because our sin has been covered by the righteousness of Christ. When we trust in him, God imputes or credits to us the righteousness of Christ, that when God looks at us, he does not see our sin and all the things that we could be accused of. He sees the righteousness of his son. But that phrase above reproach suggests more than the lack of any legal accusation. It suggests also that there's not even a hint of gossip that can be made about the one who is in Christ. Because my bicycle accident took place on private property, I've been in communication with the property owner and um, checking to see if their insurance might provide any coverage. Um, And so this past week, the other day, I had a conversation with an insurance claims adjuster. And for those who don't know about the accident, I was riding on a path, I had ridden on the road, I turned off onto a path, and as soon as I got onto the path, There before me were a couple of hoses, irrigation hoses across the path. And these weren't just your everyday garden hoses, like the half-inch kind that kink and bend and flatten out when you step on them or try to move them across the lawn. These were heavy-duty irrigation hoses. They had to be at least three-quarters, if not an inch in diameter or maybe even more. And they did not compress at all. They were like trying to ride over a metal wet pipe. And the tires on my bicycle are 23 centimeters wide, less than an inch. I'm not some mountain bike guru who was out there trying to jump stumps and do tricks or anything like that. I avoid obstacles when I'm on my road bike. I'm particularly aware of storm sewer grates and things like that and railroad crossings and all of that. And so if I had known that there were hoses across the path, I never would have ventured up this path. So I turned to go up the path. I glanced to see how steep it was. I started up the path, and there are these two hoses in front of me. And one of them was perpendicular to my path. I got over that one. The other one was at an angle, and taking a 23-centimeter tire, trying to get over a hose like that, which was wet, 
just does not make a good combination, and it flipped me down on my right side. And so in my conversation with this insurance claims adjuster, she said, so the hoses were visible, right? Well, yes, the hoses were visible, but I didn't see them until I was right up on top of them. So it's not like I was trying to see how adept I was at hopping obstacles on a road bike. She was making an accusation against me that I was being negligent in some way, that I saw the danger, but I just decided to go for it anyway. And I got really angry. But the good news is that when it comes to faith in Christ, he reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death, and he will one day present us holy and blameless and above reproach so that no accusation, no even hint of gossip can stick against us. And that brings us to our present calling, which is to continue in faith, or literally, as the text says, continue in the faith. There is an objective content to this faith, like in the letter of Jude, where it says, contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. There is content to this faith that we have to have, and the content is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God in the flesh, lived, died, and rose again. And so we're to continue believing that God is for us, that he's not against us, that God is good, that he is always working everything for our good and for his glory. So the calling upon our lives, upon your life and mine, is to continue in the faith, to not shift to not move away from this foundation of the hope of the gospel, to not try and build our life on some sand pile that's just going to wash away with the wind and the waves. In the gospel, we see that some different tenses or aspects of our salvation in the past, those of us who have trusted in Christ have been freed from the penalty of sin, which is death. This is what we mean by justification, that we are justified. It's just as if I never sinned. We have been declared not guilty if we trust in Christ. If you are not trusting in Christ today, I urge you to place your faith in Christ because one day you and I and all of us will stand before a holy God. And our sin will either be punished on the cross of Christ because we're trusting in him, or it will be punished upon our life for all of eternity. Those of us who trust in Christ have been freed from the penalty of sin. That's what we mean by justification. We are being freed from the power of sin. More and more, little by little, we are being freed from the power of sin. This is what the Bible calls sanctification, that we are being made holy, that we're being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And that one day we will be freed from the presence of sin of sin. And that's what the Bible calls glorification, that we will be glorified with him. We will have new resurrection bodies. We will dwell in the new Jerusalem where there will be no sin anymore. So God has called us to continue in the faith. And we need to think about what that looks like in practical terms. 
It it involves believing that God is good and that God is for us and not against us. As Dan Fuller used to say, if the freight train has made it over the mountain pass, there is nothing that will stop it from highballing its way into the village below, in the valley below. What he was saying by that is God has done in Christ the most difficult thing. In Romans 8, it says, if God did not spare his own son for us, but gave him up for us all, how much more will he graciously give us all things with him? So to continue in faith means not only to look back at what Jesus did, but to believe that he is going to continue to do all that is necessary for us for all eternity. To continue in faith means to go on believing that God is good, that he's for us and not against us. It involves speaking well of God. You remember the story of Job, where he had messengers come to him one after another with terrible news. There was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. There came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing, the donkeys were feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck them down, and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck them down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. Behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe, a sign of grief, a sign of mourning, shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshipped, and worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And the narrator of Job comments, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Lest we think that Job was speaking something false about God, he wasn't. He was telling the truth. Job blessed the Lord. To continue in faith means that we bless the Lord in the midst of persecution, in the midst of trials, that we speak well of God, that we say, he is good, he is for me and not against me. we can hold on to the hope of the gospel because Christ is holding us. You may remember your school days with Greek mythology and learning about Homer's Odyssey and the story of Odysseus and his men that they were sailing by the island where the siren song was sung and these creatures that were half woman and half fish or something, they sang these beautiful songs, and whoever heard the songs would jump off their ship, 
dive in the ocean, try to swim closer, and they'd die in the ocean or upon the rocks. Odysseus didn't want to die that way, and so he had his men lash him to the mast of the ship. And then he took beeswax and plugged up the ears of all the men on his ship. And so he alone would hear this siren song. He would be able to hear this beautiful music and not die. And so there he was, and he heard the song, and he was crying out to his men to cut the rope, set him free so that he could jump into the water. But the beeswax in their ears kept them from he hearing. He was lashed to the mast. He was held fast there, and so he was saved. We can hold fast to the hope of the gospel because Christ is holding us. Jesus said, I know my sheep. No one can snatch them out of my hand. I am holding them. No one can snatch them out of my hand. So we continue in faith by continuing to believe that God is good, by speaking well of God, by blessing the Lord at all times, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of trials, in the midst of false accusations, we say, God is good. He is working for me. He is working for my good and for his greater glory. And I'm going to continue to trust him. I will continue to hold on to the hope of the gospel because he is holding me and he will never let go. That's a little bit what it looks like to continue in faith. On the flip side, if you see any of these kind of things, and I've identified them as A, B, C, and D for the sake of memory, if you start to feel anxious, like, what's going on in my life? I'm worried it's not working out the way I thought it should. Or bitter, when you have bitterness towards people or towards God, that's a sign that you're not continuing in faith. So last night when I was having trouble sleeping, I was thinking, I wonder who left those hoses across the path. And the enemy would have wanted me to just become bitter at that person and blame that person for messing up my life, ruining my life. But God reminded me that he is working this situation for my good. And so it frees me from bitterness. If there's anxious thoughts, if there's bitter thoughts, if there's complaining rising up in our hearts, that's a sign that we're not continuing in faith. If we're disengaged from the body of Christ, if we're not in fellowship with believers, that's another sign that we're not continuing in faith. So all of those things should be warning signals to say, I'm going the wrong way. I need to repent. I need to come back to Christ and trust in him and believe that he's good, that he's working for my good, that he's for me and not against me, and so I will bless him at all times. I believe that what God wants us to take away from this text is that we can hold on to the hope of the gospel because he is holding on to us. Let's pray together. Lord, it is so easy for us to become anxious, to become bitter about things that have happened to us, to complain about others or what they've done, and to disengage and to isolate ourselves. And we pray that you would guard us from that. We want to continue in the faith. We know that it is only those who persevere to the end who will be saved. And we thank you that that perseverance does not depend ultimately upon us but upon you and your grace. And so, Lord, we ask 
that you would make us so aware of your strong hand holding us that we would, in faith, hold on to you, that we would take hold of your hand and recognize that your hand is holding ours and you will never let us go. So Lord, thank you that you are the one who enables us to continue in faith and that one day you will present us to yourself holy and blameless and above reproach. We give you praise and honor and glory for your great love and mercy towards us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.